Hi folks, thanks for tuning in and welcome to this month's episode of Plastic Grass Square. I'm your host, Aaron Lucas, and today we're chatting to the design director from Blue Egg, Adam Faulkner, about his recent trip to the UX London conference. Adam, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us on uh, Plastic Grass Square. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Right, welcome back. It's nice to have you back from London. Um, how was your trip? It was good. Yeah? It was good. Sunny, you know. Uh, in London? I know. It was bizarre, but it was actually, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. Lovely over there. Good weather, which is very weird. Wow. That's not the London I know. <laughs> uh, but look, I'm glad for you that it was. I'm glad for you that it was. Thank you. Um, mate, let's get started. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself first. Uh, how did you end up working in user experience? Look, um, a long journey. Long journey. I think I first started getting involved in user experience when I was at Sony. Mm-hmm. So I think what became really obvious is there was a lot of, and I was at Sony for seven years, um, what became really obvious when I was there is that we were often missing the interface perspective. So we had some really cool technology, but we didn't have an interface. And so, you know, when I, because of my background in, in healthcare, so I did pharmacology um, mm-hmm. at Sydney Uni, so a Bachelor of Science, major in pharmacology, and um, what became clear is when I started to look into the healthcare space even more, we were having this real disconnect. So starting to look at interfaces and designs right back at Sony is where I really got fascinated by it and by service design and going into hospitals and doing research. And you could see this really big disconnect between a patient's um, experience versus a clinician's versus a doctor's and all the different steps in between. And so that's really what started my passion for delivering better experiences and then when I was at Blackberry um, so I worked at Blackberry for a couple of years and worked on the the app store there which was a fun adventure it was an adventure oh I bet (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know look you learn a lot from failure yes (laughs) and uh, what I learned there was we worked with a lot of um, incubators and that's how I started to really get involved with River City Labs in Brisbane Fishburners and Tankstream in Sydney um, Revision 9 and butter in Melbourne um, that's where I really started to get involved with the community so we like the startup community yeah and, that's yeah. right the startup community and and you could see a lot of people really you know very clever very good at one thing but not very good at thinking about who it is is going to use that thing and so when I was at Blackberry I did work with a lot of these startups to deliver better experiences and really got into the hands-on bit of you know sketching and wireframing and designing for them and so that's really where I started to get really quite passionate about it because you could see doing the research and then helping these startups delivered some really good returns and Mm. so it was really that's where I started to get excited about user experience Mm. I guess sort of thought it could be a career. So I I guess like you know you you noticed early working with those startups while you were at Blackberry that there was that possibility almost from the outset that they're going to repeat the mistakes of a large organisation like Sony and repeat those mistakes from the start of their business. Um, you know, I think we, we know from large organisations like Sony and Telstra and, you know, um, Nokia and, and similar and BlackBerry, obviously, mm. that it's really hard to reverse engineer that experience, that user experience back into the product. Mm. But if you can get there at the beginning, like you were with startups, it seems, mm. um, you've got a real chance at influence. And I think that, I mean, you know, at the time that Eric Reese book, um, Lean Startup, and still continues to have quite a large influence over the startup community terms of a minimum viable product I think I always found that I found that a little bit grating that language I always prefer the minimum desirable product 
so that we've got an MDP which we can get out there to really help people. I think mm-hmm. that's important. Um, but you're right. If we can instill a human-centered approach from a very early stage in a business, then the ability to um, deliver long-term value and long-term benefits for their users mm. is huge. Mm. So it sounds as well like um, your sort of, I guess, arrival at or at, at having your own uh, experience design agency it was it was an evolution thing. It wasn't necessarily a single eureka kind of oh god, no, everyone's broken. Yeah, kind no. of moment. No, no, it wasn't. It was really it was a it was an evolution from Sony to BlackBerry. Uh, finished my MBA in between, mm. and it was a real kind of process where I just went, you know, this is there's a way that we can help. There's a way that I can help. And if we can find a way to talk to people, distill that information and deliver evidence-based insights to people who need that help, Mm. then we should do that. So that's when I founded Blue Egg back in 2012. Excellent. Yeah, which is like six years ago now, which is crazy. Yeah. But yeah, so that's when I founded it back in 2012. Um, And it's been a a journey. You know, I'd say I don't think we've done everything right so far. I think we uh, probably... um, you know, really need to follow the same methodology that we apply for our customers all the time and our users, make sure that we do our own research and follow our own advice. Yep. Um, but it's, you know, I think we've worked with some great brands, you know, we've worked with some great some great clients. We've worked with Volkswagen, we've worked with Suncorp, we've worked with University of Sydney, we've worked with Hotels Combined, we've worked with some great big brands um, yeah. and delivered some really great insights and better experiences, you know. We've worked with all sorts of people, lots of startups. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's been a great adventure and I think the great thing is is the one leveller is no matter how big the business is or how small the startup is, it always comes back to talking to people. Yes. If you talk to people who are going to use the thing you're doing, then you're going to know what they want out of the thing and yeah. we can make a better thing and we can deliver a better experience. Well, and it's still that, that simple act, that mm. simple fact of, of, of um, talking to the, to the customer, to the user, and this is something we, I was talking to Amanda about last month as well. Mm. You know, that simple act is still a really a revolutionary thought for a lot of organisations, regardless of their size. Yeah. Like, they're, it's just mind-blowing to them. They're like, what? Yeah. You spoke to my customers? That's right. They That's want right. what? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I always talk about the warm hug. You know, it's yes. always, always giving that warm hug to your users. You want them to feel involved and they, you want them to feel cared for and you want them to feel like if they're going to give you information, you're going to give them something in return and you're going to make it a really rewarding process for them. I mean, mm. none of us, you know, we, we sort of forget that none of us want to give information to someone else unless we think we're going to get something back and we, unless we think there's going to be a value there. So, yeah. you know, it's really, it's really just comes back to thinking about people that's yeah. the most important thing yeah yeah it, it is most definitely the most important thing mm. and regardless of how transactional your product is or functional it is or required it is for someone to get through their daily life like you it's still a person that has to use it mm. so yeah. you really need to put them put them at the center yeah. and and you know sometimes i feel like you know you have that kind of imposter syndrome i know i've heard mike cannon brooks talk about it mm. last year and it's like sometimes i feel like well am i be am i a bit of an imposter because do i have the right to tell other businesses yeah what's going on and, and it's not me all i'm doing is providing what their users said yeah you know i am that kind of translator from i was about to say we're, we're a conduit yeah 
yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. We're definitely yeah. a conduit between the the user of the thing and the person who's making, who's the, making thing the thing or doing the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of things. Lots of things. <laughs> um, mate, speaking of lots of things, so um, you're just back from UX London, like we are saying, you just got back from London. Yeah. Um, have you been the, to this conference before? Is this the first time you've ever attended? No, first time I've been to UX London, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it was it was a valuable experience. Yeah. Mm. And why um, why did you choose UX London this year in particular? I know uh, last year uh, you went to Enterprise UX in San Fran, mm-hmm. um, but this year you've gone to, to UX London. Are you just sharing yourself around or was there something <laughs> in particular about UX London that attracted you to it or I think it's very easy when you're in a design community UX community to be a bit insular mm-hmm. and to not be cognizant or aware of what other people are doing what other awesome experiences they're doing how they're doing things better and I think it's really important to you know go to different parts of the world and see how people are doing it over there and, and really collaborate with other fellow practitioners and get a, a sense of what they do and mm-hmm. sense check whether our approach makes sense and see if there's things we can add into the process to, to continue to add more value to our customers back in Australia. Um, but I do like to go, so last year was the US, this year was London, next year I'll like to go somewhere different again. Mm-hmm. So at least one different place a year yep. with a high proportion of designers where you can talk about projects and collaboration and tools and all sorts of nuggets of gold that you get out of it that mm. you don't get from sitting at your desk and, you know, working on client projects. So is there enough, you know, like obviously as, you know, a design community, to use that very overarching term, um, you know, we're kind of applying similar, um, we're, you know, using design thinking as, as the basis of what we do and uh, there's going to be a lot of commonality of tools and in terms of um, how we work as practitioners, but is there there's enough cultural variation between uh, practitioners? No matter, you know, there's the commonality in the tools and the commonality of process, but obviously there's that cultural difference. Is that that informs uh, the work of practitioners? You feel, and that's there's there's value in learning from that. Or one thing that we yeah absolutely one thing that we don't have in Australia is scale, mm. and we don't you know cultural inclusive design is something that I've talked about quite a bit, right? And that's what yeah. I talked about last year at UX Australia. Yes, and. For I think a lot of Australian businesses, it's still a little bit of a mind shift as to to the approach and to different cultures and different mm-hmm. content. Whereas in the UK, it's just a way of doing things because you are so close to Europe. You have France on your doorstep. You've got Germany. You've got a raft of European countries where you've got to think in what is important for that language and culture. And mm-hmm. it's simply, you know, it shouldn't be so surprising to Australian businesses that Culture inclusive design is important, but um, when we're over there, we get to collaborate and talk to designers with a raft of different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. A lot of them where English is not their first language. Um, you know, a lot of them from I was speaking a lot from from Amsterdam and from Germany, and they're there too because they want to collaborate. But what is their experience in their countries? And so that's what I'm always keen to get under the under the bonnet of and really yeah. understand. And that was great. A really really good sessions with lots of people. Excellent. Um, interesting that you mention, um, you know, that sort of cultural exchange between the UK and mainland Europe, mm. especially given um, the some of the political processes that are taking place in the UK at the moment. Mm. Was there any sort of um, uh, hint or discussion or was it a subject at all of the conference that the UK is leading the European Union and... Um, 
does that have an impact at all for design or? Look, aside from the uh, occasional joke about it, right. uh, there wasn't really, no, I don't think there was really seen as Brexit having any kind of impact on design. Mm. I think it was probably, a, it wasn't certainly a topic of, a, of any of the talks, okay. um, but it, it was it was not really something that came up in conversation with many of the designers either, other than it being a bit bizarre. Yes. Um, but I, I don't know what the impact will be yet. I mean, I suspect it'll probably be, um, you know, particularly, so there was, you know, there was a bunch of um, talks and Louise Down, from, who's the uh, Director of Design and um, Services for the UK Government, mm -hmm. um, she um, might see a bit of an impact. So I'd say, depending on what your role is, different designers would probably see different impacts different, yeah. um, but I think more generally in the community probably not as big a deal as you know multiple languages dealing with multiple cultures and content hierarchy that was probably more yeah. the, the topic of conversation versus yeah. specific well, I mean, I suppose, you know, regardless of what um, uh, economic, functional economic changes mm -hmm. take place um, you know, if someone's designing for the web and their, their designs are going to be seen on the internet that cultural difference still has to be accounted for Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That cultural difference has to be accounted for. It's not going to stop people from Germany going to the UK. It's not going to stop no. people from the UK going to Italy. So it's, you know, I think general movements and interactions and usage of online tools, I don't think that will change. But no. I, as I said, I think specific spaces like government yeah. and the way that they design certain interactions with other countries might be a challenge. But yeah. generally, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, so the conference itself, three days of workshops, um, three days of presentations as well. Yeah. Um, how, how do you choose to, how do you decide where you're going to spend your time? What's your, do you have a process or do you just go, oh, that looks cool, I want to go and do that? Or Yeah, it's a really neat way that they do UX London. So as opposed to other conferences where they'll do the workshops up front, mm -hmm. sort of pre the conference, yeah. they would do the workshops each day. So you would have the morning of talks and then the talks would finish about 12.30 mm -hmm. and then in the afternoon you'd have a workshop that you could pick from. So you have sort of four or five workshops. And that was really neat because it actually broke the day up because it can be super hard to concentrate and remember so many cool ideas from like 10 speakers over a day and mm. it becomes quite draining. Yeah. So the workshop was actually a nice little refresher in the afternoon. It kind of really gave you a bit of a boost. It was interactive. They were all interactive and you're sitting on with groups of people. So it gave you a chance to collaborate really well with people. Yeah. And it wasn't just over like a drink session. You know, sometimes you just, the only time you truly get to meet people you haven't spoken to is at the, you know, the front, the conference dinner. Yes. Or conference yeah, yeah. drinks. And yeah. this was great because there was no drinks. There was a lot of post-its and Sharpies, but you know, no, no drinks. And it was really good to, to collaborate that way. Um, yeah. I, a little bit organic, so that because all the talks, there wasn't two streams of talks, it was just one stream. Oh, excellent. So I didn't have to choose between speakers, which was good. Mm -hmm. um, but then in the afternoon, it was a bit organic because a lot of the speakers who spoke in the mornings would run different workshops. So you kind of got a bit of a flavour for the speaker. Yeah. And then you could pick which workshops you went to. So that worked. That was really good too. I yeah. really So overall, I think they did a great sort of design of it. I thought it was a great, great conference. Yeah, so I mean, that structurally, that's quite different from mm. not just you know, um, design conferences that I've attended here in Australia, mm. but nearly every conference that I've ever attended, yeah. regardless of industry, it's like workshops, plenary, yeah. speakers, yep. two or three streams of speakers, and you're like, you know, by midway through the second day, your brain's full, yeah, and you can't, like, you know, you're not 
really taking on any new information. Oh, you can't. You've got like this information overload, right? And mm. totally, like every conference is like that. And it was really nice to see it different. Like, I, I really, I think everybody responded quite well to it. And I mm. think it was definitely just that afternoon refresher that you needed. People go out and grab a quick, you know, coffee and then they come back to the workshop and it was good, you know. They, they fed everybody really well. They had food trucks. Yeah. Every day there were six different types of food trucks. Mm. Like it was really... It was a fun... They, they actually cared about the people at the conference, which was great. Yeah. Because I think they've been doing... This was their 10-year anniversary. Right. They've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah. I think they've actually listened to a lot of the feedback and they were doing it. The mm. food was great. Mm. Food was great. Lots of different options. No same food each day. Five food trucks would rock up on the grass outside. You could pick your different food truck. It was fantastic. So, you know, they really... The environment for thinking yeah. was there. It was a great building. Um, it was a really nice building space. It was sort of a dance studio. Oh. So we kind of had different... We nice. had the We had the theatre within the dance studio, but then some of the workshops were in, were in dance um, rooms. So mm-hmm. lots of mirrors everywhere in yep. bars, you know, yep. for ballet dancing and, and all sorts of dancing. So it was, it was a cool space. Yeah. Um, so overall, I think they did a great job of it. I was really, yeah, definitely enjoyed it. And I would go back... Probably not next year, but I would go back in a couple of years' time yeah, to yeah. see where they're at again. It sounds like they've really, really maximised what we know about, um, you know, cognitive um, effort and mm. behaviour and actually applied that to, you know, how they structure a conference so that oh, they're, totally. they're not tiring people out. They're doing almost, you know, what you were saying before about what, you know, Blue Egg needs to do as an agency but also probably all agencies need to do, which is to... Make sure that you're looking inward. Make sure mm. you're applying your own process to mm. yourselves as well as selling it to a client or, mm. or offering it to a client. Um, it sounds like UX London, the organisers of that, have basically applied those same principles to, yeah. to yeah. the structure of the. Yeah, they they did a great. I mean, it's clear left to do it, and they, and they mm. did they did a great job. So I th- you're absolutely right. They definitely yeah. applied human centred design principles to the conference, mm. and it it showed. People were happy. They were enjoying it. They were engaged. No one was nodding off in the afternoon because you're in a workshop. You know, yeah. and I think that's great. And it's it also pays respect to to the speakers because it's a tough gig presenting at four thirty in the afternoon when everybody's had a huge day of talks and they I mean they want to hear your talk but they're just a bit tired. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. So I think I think it really did mean that, you know, I've been to a lot of conferences where you've got lots of people outside. You know, they're yeah. kind of they're on their laptops, but there really wasn't any of that at this conference. And oh was, really? I think it was because everybody didn't have enough time to kind of get bored with it you mm-hmm. know, they were sort of they had the great talks in the morning and then they had lunch and workshops in the afternoon yeah. so continued no one, to feel stimulated yeah 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 it was great it was a really neat thing that i think that some conferences in australia could benefit from following as well because mm. it was a nice a nice change mm. um so let's have a chat about some of those afternoon workshops shall we yeah um was there you know did each day have a theme was there an overall theme for the whole event, yep. um, you know what? What was the what was the story with that? I guess. Well, the, I mean, the, all sorts of different talks. There's a lot of talk about research, mm-hmm. which always makes me very happy. Yeah. Um, each day, you know, the morning talks were were great. I mean, day one was a real a real range, but I think Paul Adams spoke of the end of navel gazing, mm-hmm. um, and he had this he had this great uh, quote that he brought up because his his gripe is that often designers think they are the centre of the universe. And it was a really nice, refreshing talk to say, look, you know, 
His quote was, the biggest lie is that we are the voice of the user. Mm. Right? So We are still not the user. That's right. We are not the user. Yeah. But also, we're not... There's a lot of people in an organisation who also understand users. Mm. If you talk to salespeople in any organisation, if they want to be able to sell something to somebody, they need to understand what people want. And so the real point of his talk was to say, look... Yes, we do good research. Yes, we go and talk to the users. But we're not the only people who talk to the users. Mm. So we need to collaborate internally. And, you know, I think it's a systemic problem, particularly for corporations, where we're now seeing mature user experience teams who feel like they are the only ones who own the relationship with the user. And that's not true. So it's about reminding them that whilst they have done some research, they still should engage all the other internal teams who talk to users? Mm. If it's sales, talk to them. If it's accounts, talk to them. If it's branches in a bank, talk to the branch staff. I mean, it's, it's really important to think about all sides, both internal staff and the user. And I think that's that was really good. So I thought Paul's was great. It was mm. also, <laughs> there was a lot of gasps in the audience. Oh, so I can imagine. It, it sounds to me a little like, um, you know, that as... Um, you know, cutting edge, I hate saying that, but for want of a better term, I'm going to use that at the moment, as, you know, at the forefront of uh, organisational thinking and structure as a lot of design designers like to think that they are, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that they, we are now becoming, you know, professionals in our own department a lot of the time within a large corporation also now means that we sit in our own silo Mm. um, and, you know, really... Um, design experience design in particular needs to be structured flat across an organisation mm. but as happens with, with big companies or even medium sized companies they're just put in their own little silo yeah. and left there and then they don't have that outward vision to the other departments of the, of the business yeah absolutely and I think you know as designers we can't be arrogant mm. we can't be the only one yes we are driving the conversation with users but other people are doing that too and so let's just be mindful of everybody in the organisation who has a relationship with the user and engage with everybody because they might have asked a whole different set of questions. Salespeople might have asked a whole different set of questions that we never thought about. And so the insights might be fantastic for mm. us. So sharing and collaborating internally is going to give us a better result. Yeah. Um, Crystal Higgins gave a really good talk too on day one and she led into a a workshop in the afternoon on onboarding. Okay. Um, and it was really good, actually. I really... I think the, the good thing about hers was that it wasn't... You know, onboarding can often be seen as this thing that just happens. You know, it's at the beginning, you've signed up, tick, 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 and you're done. Mm. You know, and her talk was sort of onboarding for the long run. And I think that's important because it's not one moment with onboarding. It's a, it's a continual process. It's a life cycle. It's a stage of where they're at in their engagement with you and your engagement with them. And how do you continue to bring them on board the journey, you know? And so the afternoon, her workshop was great because she was talking about, you know, creating a user onboarding compass. And I thought that was a really neat way to think of it. And, and, you know, what are the triggers? What is the activity? What are the follow-ups? What's that kind of key actions or processes that need to happen Mm -hmm. to deliver a really neat onboarding thing? So, And she's based in Sydney as well. So it was was great to um great to hear her talk i thought she did a yeah awesome job and it really just reminded people and and actually highlighted to a lot of people that it's not just a once-off thing it's not just a step in the process it's yeah. a yeah 
Yeah, exactly. It's not just a, a step. In, it's just it's 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 lots of steps. Mm. Keep going. Life cycle. Keep thinking about it. Well, because you know, certainly with onboarding, you know, I hear we hear um, you know clients and, and some other designers talking about it a lot as well. Like it's just this gateway mm. that gets opened, and then the user passes through it, and then it shuts again, mm. and then they're in the world of the product, whatever mm. that might be. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I feel like a lot of the time, like you say. The onboarding needs to continue because letting someone loose in the world of whatever your product is doesn't necessarily mean that they've bought into it. They haven't had that warm hug that you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They don't really know where they are now. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. You know, particularly when you have mature products where they have so many different features within an experience or an app, mm. <clears throat> you know, you've got to find ways, innovative ways to create awareness because users within a rich, feature-rich app don't know this stuff and mm. if we don't continually onboard them and make them feel warm then they're going to never use it yeah which is a common problem for a lot of banks because there's so much functionality and all we want to do in there is check out if we've been paid and pay some bills yeah you know and transfer some money to the credit card that kind yeah. of seems to be the three things that we do <laughs> in a banking app so try and getting people to be caring about other opportunities in there is an onboarding challenge mm. Mm. day two was great too so we had i thought it, we had a really interesting speaker right at the beginning, and his name is um, Jan Chipchase, mm-hmm. and he he's fascinating. Um, he's firstly he's he's written a beautiful book, an absolutely beautiful book. It's called the Field Study Handbook, which I grabbed a copy of, and obviously you can't see this if this is a podcast, but I'm holding it. So if that makes you feel better, that's oh. pages turning. Can you do a thing? That's pages turning. There nice, you go. nice. You like that? Yeah, I'll take um, a photo of you later holding it, and then great. everyone can see. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so you can buy it online at Amazon. <laughs> yep. But um, it's a beautiful book about getting under the skin in research. Mm. How do you get to the next layer? So, you know, he talks about all sorts of um, fascinating trips where he takes, um, he goes on sort of adventures and expeditions to Afghanistan or um, really remote areas to spend time with communities and to, to live with them. Mm. And it's that next layer of research, which is, you know, bringing people in for an hour and having an interview with them. You learn a lot. Spending two weeks with someone in their community, living with them and having breakfast, you just learn so much more. Yeah. And that's really the essence of what he talked about, was that we want to spend more and more time with people in our research to learn as much as we can. Mm. And we know that whenever we do our field research, you know, when you do contextual research, you learn heaps because you're in their environment. So if we go to a community and we want to understand a community, we need to go to their environment. So I thought the Field Study Handbook is beautiful. It is a great book. It is just one of those coffee table books that you should have anyway as a designer. Yep. I couldn't recommend it more highly. The, the drawings in here are beautiful. It was a Kickstarter campaign to actually self-publish. So it's a it's a it's a beautiful piece of work. So and so it's not not just the information you're talking about, but the actual publishing of the book itself. Like yeah. the, the the way it's bound and the printing it's, and everything. It's it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, like, it's gorgeous and extremely detailed. Yeah, extremely detailed. It goes into a, a really good level of detail in terms of research. And if you're wanting to take your research to another level, and I'm not saying you have to go to Afghanistan to do that, but. <laughs> Um, probably not top of everyone's list. Probably not top no. of everyone's holiday list, no. no. But 
Um, if you want to take your research to, you know, understanding more about field research or understanding more about constructs or data collection, mm -hmm. um, and, and I think data collection is one of those tricky ones as well that, you know, we probably all need to work on more as designers because it is not something that potentially naturally um, coexists with a designer yeah. approach. And so learning how to do data collection and do it well and then synthesize that well, mm. this book is really useful. So, um, you know, talking about the, the field methods, implementation, I, I definitely recommend it. We'll uh, put up a link to uh, where you can get that on Amazon, folks, so we'll yeah. make it easy to find. Awesome. Um, and Louise Down, I mentioned her before. Yep. So she was the Director of Design and Service at the UK Government. Mm -hmm. She had this great quote. I mean, her talk was just basically on her experience and, and, and what it is to design in the, in the um, paradigm of public service design. And, and such a, a, you know, an established public service yeah. like, like the British Government, I just dread to think. Absolutely, and she she made this great quote, which is like you know, designing within government in the UK is like being an archaeologist. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I could only imagine you know, the finding sh fold you know forms and all sorts of ridiculous things must just be hilarious. You know, some of the the anecdotes she talked about were forms that dated back hundreds of years. I'm not so, surprised. <laughs> all I'm, sorts of yeah, yeah. All sorts of fascinating stuff, but uh, like I think that's why you go to these kind of conferences because you get to hear from someone who's working at it on scale. Mm, mm. You know, sort of 40, 50, 60, 70 million users at a time. And if you look at their experience, if you go to the, you know, um, UK government website on mobile and on desktop, it's blisteringly fast. The experience um, is fantastic. And, and they reduced, what they did was, they had a little neat trick. They made the text bigger. Oh. Why did they do that? Well, accessibility, but... Yeah so that not as much content could be put in there. Oh. So it deliberately forced content owners to reduce the content. Right. And on mobile, it made it much easier to read. Um, it's deliberately not got pictures yep. because they're content and they, you, know, you need to be able to find things. So it's IA and its structure is very fast, very clean, very easy to find anything, um, and it's had amazing feedback. So... I think it's a really good example of a centralised government tool um, and it is listed as one of the key government resources now mm. like in the UK as a, a key asset yes. yeah, yeah, that yeah, they okay. use to you know, hang on to all of their data. So yeah. it's, it's a fascinating piece that I think particularly the Australian government experience could look at and mm. look to to see how we could make a better experience here. Well, it certainly seems like, you know, not just with Australian government but looking, you know, at, at other governments... Uh, in our region and around the world as well, is that they take this kind of templated approach where, mm. like, you know, they everything sort of looks the same, but it's also the same level of useless mm. as a result. Yeah. Like, you know, they've all got they're always in the same templates. Every, all the sites have a consistent look and feel, but it's the same terrible look and feel and terrible amount of, of usefulness. Yeah, absolutely right. And and I think where a lot of the Australian experiences are falling over is the content overload on mobile. Mm. We're providing too much content, not necessarily the content that the user wants, and it's hard to find. Mm. And so you put all of those into one bucket and it's really not adding to a good mobile experience. And I think the term mobile first is something that's kind of died. It's more data first. Yeah. It's more about 
where do we get the data from and what data do we need access to at those micro moments in time. When I'm on the bus, I care about this thing. But mm. when I'm on my computer in the office, I care about something different. And I think that's what it's about. But the, the idea of not having it work on devices with smaller screens is silly. Yeah. The idea of not being able to change content hierarchy based off the screen size is silly. And, and I think that that's a maturity that Australia will, will get to, that we're, mm. not, we're not out yet with a lot of our large brands. And I think we need to really um, educate and encourage. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. As much as Nicely, we can. just sort of, come on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know you want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, day three. Yep. Day three was a cracker as well. Um, I think the standout for me was Pamela Pavlicek. Um, mm-hmm. And she talked about creating a future with feelings, mm. which I, I loved, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she, the really interesting thing she was talking about is um, design and how it's impacted by humans' ability to anthropomorphize um, technology. And what does that mean for voice interfaces? Yeah, okay. What does that mean for robots? You know, we'll see, we've seen all the start of these these robots that have got um, Google Home mm-hmm. or they've got Amazon they've got Alexa, Alexa in, them in there yeah, yeah. and they're all quite cutesy and friendly and, and very deliberately so so that we are imagining a cute little puppy you know or we're imagining something that is really relatable Yeah. and I think that will just grow but what is the impact of design in terms of how do we design with these new devices? How do we design with language interfaces involved? Yep. And how do we um, work with and not against the anthropomorphic nature that we have? Yeah. Um, because we all do it. And the more comfortable people feel with technology, the more willing they are to accept things that they wouldn't necessarily accept. And I think it's, it's, it's an opportunity and a fine line because obviously we need to be very careful how we design these types of things yeah um, and be very mindful of the types of people who are going to be using them well and so it sounds like you know almost like we design as designers we need to not necessarily rethink um, the ethics of, of our work but rethink how we apply it to new situations and new new devices really mm-hmm. I mean we're you know there's all I feel like there's already a lot of conversation going about the ethics of design for AI systems um, and and how, you know, how we make those sorts of things approachable Mm. um, but not too approachable. Yeah. Um, But And and so obviously we're going to need to have the same conversation around devices that are clearly backed with AI as well. Well, I think the the Google I.O. came up quite a bit because of the recent, um, you know, example they did on stage mm. where they did the two phone calls you know one was to a hairdresser the other one was to a restaurant yep. and that sparked all sorts of conversations around the world um, and in the UK and in Australia around the ethics of do we need does a human need to know they're speaking to artificial intelligence mm. and if so how do we do that um, if not how do we live with that a new paradigm because yeah. we, it's here and it's a matter of making it Comfortable and people feeling comfortable with it, but also understanding the ethics of using it. So it's, it's a big Pandora's box that I think Google probably wasn't prepared for the level of um, response. Yeah, I, you know, I, 
I wonder that about sometimes though with, with a big company like Google. Mm. Like, I, I think sometimes th- they know, like they would, they would have an idea internally at least anyway, mm. what it is that they're opening up. Mm, mm. Um, and in some respects, it serves them for them to be, a, uh, at least outwardly, a little bit surprised. Yeah. Oh, oh, really? We need to have this conversation when mm. perhaps in the in the first instance they were actually trying to get the conversation started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, knowing that it needs to happen mm. and knowing that they're not going to get acceptance for their products mm. unless the conversation takes place, then, you know, maybe they're being deliberately trying to kick it off. And the surprise is... is I'm not saying that this is yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. what's happening, but maybe their surprise is a little bit feigned to try and motivate people to talk about it. I think that's, you know, that's actually a pretty interesting point. I mean, you're probably right. Mm. Probably right in terms of them thinking about it, for sure. I mean, the the workshop I went to in the afternoon was by a guy called Adrian Zambrunen, mm-hmm. and he's, from, he's a designer at Google. And so he was talking about designing conversations. Right. And... Um, you know, there was obviously a lot of conversations going on internally about the response to Google I.O. Yeah. Um, but his workshop was fascinating because it talked about all the different tools and the processes and it was really quite an enabling workshop. Mm. Gave us a lot of things that we can try back here, gave us a lot of tools to be able to play with natural language interfaces. How can we, how can we work with it? How can we use that information to better serve up all sorts of interactions mm for our clients online um, and to deliver better, uh, more timely, more um, accurate responses to customers' questions. Mm. So it was, it was great, but it also did show the scale of, of how quite difficult they are as well because we're still not quite, we're sort of like at the dot matrix level. Yes. We yeah, ha- yeah. They're, they're still a bit noisy, quite clunky, yep. and, and really quite time consuming to create something that does deliver a, a whole experience but I think if we use these tools at the moment to do one thing well then we'll be able to do um, it really well yes. but if we try and use these language interfaces natural language interfaces to do multiple things we'll go too light and we won't deliver a, 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 we, we just won't deliver a good experience and I think it'll just come back to you know there's already scepticism from users around using a, uh, an online chat. Yeah. So why would we use an, a natural language interface unless we start to see some value and we start to see it working in a way that we think is, is great, is correct, it's accurate, um, and it's you know actually adding value. Well, and I mean with you know uh, natural language interfaces and you know there, I. Imagine I don't actually know, but I imagine that they're based, you know, backed by um, uh, software that or computational linguistic software that that drives the interaction itself. Um, that software needs to learn, and we need to learn how to teach it as well. Mm. So if we do go on that light touch where we try to make it lateral language interfaces do all of these different things as opposed to just focusing on a small group of tasks, mm. we don't learn how to teach the software. The software doesn't learn how to be a natural language interaction. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I completely agree. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I mean, aside from that, all of the speakers were, were pretty great. Mm. They're just some of the ones that stood out yep. for me. Um, but I, I really thought overall the conference was, was really rewarding, really interesting, really well run, and a really high calibre of speakers. And mm. a high calibre of speakers with significant um, 
set of projects under their belt which you know they have scale they have analytics they have numbers they have insights and behavior that are fascinating mm. so I, I found the I found their talks to be really interesting and rewarding and I think they'll be put online if they're available online I'm sure yep. um, and we can give some of the names of the people I guess in the we'll we'll link to some resources so yeah, that cool. uh, so that people can find okay. um, was there any like you know so there's obviously quite a variety of, of topics that were covered and not necessarily a, a, a you know a unifying theme for the event itself but were there like you know maybe two or three sort of big takeaways that you got from from the conference, some some things that you came away thinking like, wow, okay, this is this is some stuff that I I can apply, or this is something I didn't think of before, or well, the anthrop- anthropomorphic design and natural language interfaces, I think, is something that we can apply. Yeah, I think that's something that we need to start looking at now mm-hmm. because a lot of customers have got FAQs, which are ridiculous. And all oh this, yeah, all this nonsense information that is hard to find. So let's. Let's rethink that stuff yep. and see how we can use these new tools to enhance the experience. So mm. I thought that was really good. I think research definitely came up quite a bit. And, and you know, Jan Chipchase, I think, went to that level that was a consistent theme, talking about getting to the next level with research and right. really understanding people yep. in a much more deeper way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was really, really key. Uh, and there was actually, I mean, there was what there was another talk by um, uh, Netflix as well. I'm just trying to remember the, the gentleman's name. It was Naveen Iyengar, mm-hmm. and Naveen gave a great a great talk on uh, A/B testing, Netflix, how they do, how they serve up content, and this sort of testing using analytics and numbers yep. was another thing that came out. You know, so his was one example of how they use numbers to govern what content they put on the site. You know, mm. they, they thought that by, before people signing up, giving people access to all the different titles would be a good thing. It would give people confidence versus just seeing a splash screen and a sign-up. Mm. The reality was giving people more titles to look from or choose from meant that fewer people signed up because they often didn't find the title they wanted at that time. So right. if there wasn't a title that they wanted, they're like, oh, this is not good. Why would I, why would I pay for it? Right. Mm. Versus the splash screen that they keep updated with the latest titles. Yeah. Which, okay. you know, whilst they had heard some feedback that maybe this other approach would work, the analytics and the A-B testing said it didn't. It was a complete flop. So it was good to see how using analytics and numbers mm. is a solid, robust approach to helping make decisions. And that helps with stakeholders too who are, you know, um, wedded to a certain approach, but maybe no one actually uses that thing. You know, no one actually wants to do that. The conversion drops off a cliff. Whatever those metrics are, let's use some numbers. Yeah. Let's not be frightened of them. Let's use them. Yeah. You know, and I thought that was, that was great. Mm. I thought that was really interesting. And and overall, I thought the, the research part of the conference was definitely a big, a big theme. Excellent. Which is always good. Talking to people. Yeah. That's good. Go, like, like what we were saying at the beginning, yeah. evidence-based design. Evidence-based design. Excellent. Um, so you'd go again, I think you already said? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely go again. Um, I think some of the designers are coming to UX Australia for uh, running a couple of workshops as well. Um, Excellent. No, I would definitely I would definitely go again. Would um, Who would you recommend goes? Like, you know, obviously... Um, uh, experience design in particular we're still a growing industry we have a lot of new people coming into the industry all the time mm. um, is it 
is there value in this for people who are who are new to our to our you know to our business, or mm. do you need to have a little bit of time under your belt? Do you think to? I think it would. I think. I mean, everybody has you know can choose if they want to go. Oh, of um, course, but, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But but if you think, I, I think at the beginning when you're starting out in your UX career, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of events, there's a lot of meetups locally, mm. and I would start local and then get some experience and then go global. Mm. Um, so you know, get your methodology right, get your practice right, do some projects under your belt so you have an opinion, mm-hmm. and you'll get a lot more out of a conference once you've actually done. The, the work yourself okay. because if you go and you hear a lot of people talk then you you haven't got your own experience to reflect on and to compare and to then have an informed opinion you're just sort of going along it and listening becomes more noise almost yeah. Like, yeah yeah so i think there's plenty of and look ux australia is a great one to go to you know, you've yeah. got ux australia it's once a year it's going to be in melbourne this year um so you know that's a good conference to get a really good local approach and they always have good workshops at the beginning and mm. then you know after a year or two years I would then go to um, UX London or I'd go to Enterprise UX in, in San Francisco yeah. or I'd go to IXDA which switches between North America and Europe each year yeah so I'd go to one of those yeah, um, yeah. and then that's where you'd really once you've got a solid baseline you'd really start to grow your grow your skills excellent one last question okay um, I think I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask everyone anyway. Uh, soft serve or gelato? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it would be gelato. Yeah. Um, soft serve, I have a romantic thought about. Um, Mr. Whippy <laughs> doesn't seem to melt, so I can't <laughs> work that out. Yeah, I'm not sure there's much dairy in there. No, I don't think there's any dairy in it. No. It just kind of sits and doesn't move. It's frightening on a hot day. Why yeah. doesn't it melt? Um, no, gelato. I'd go classic. Actually, I don't mind a bit of mango gelato. Ooh. Like, you know, a bit of a Weiss bar is probably yeah, my yeah. approach. But, yeah, no, a bit of mango, you know, a bit nice. of racina or something, yeah. Some kind, of, some kind of fruit wedged in there would be great. Excellent. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> Adam, mate, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. It was my pleasure. Excellent. Thanks again, Adam, for joining us this month. Uh, great insight there from the UX London conference uh, that he recently attended. Um, like we talked about during the our chat, uh, we'll post I'll post links to the presentations where they're available, links to where you can find that field research guide. I'm stumbling over my own words. Eh, no one's perfect. Uh, but yeah, thanks again to Adam for that. That was uh, some really, really interesting insight there and some um, stuff that we can all take away from attending, from his attending the conference. We didn't even have to go. How good's that? Uh, please join us again next month. Uh, our guest will be Sarah McCarthy from Acon. She's a workplace education and relationship manager uh, working particularly in the diversity and inclusion space, uh, convening their Pride Inclusion Program. I'm really looking forward to chatting to Sarah next month. I hope to see you all then. Thanks again. Uh, We'll see you in a month's time. Bye, folks. Thank you.